Wendy C here from Foul Play Podcast. I'm joined here by forensic scientist Joe Millington. Joe has had an amazing career spanning over 25 years in counting. She started her career as a forensic scientist for the Scottish Police Services Authority before moving to the Homicide Division of the Forensic Science Service in London. From there, Joe did a short stint with the Specialist Forensics Division of the Metropolitan Police before moving into the private sector and now runs her own consultancy with Polly Ayres and Lynn Hingley. And if that wasn't impressive enough, in 2016, Joe joined the advisory panel for Inside Justice, a charity that investigates alleged miscarriages of justice. Joe, welcome to Crime Conversations and Foul Play. Thank you for talking to me today. My first, and I guess the most obvious question is, what made you choose forensic science as a career path? Well, thanks for having me, Wendy. Is all that open source information? <laughs> wow, It's all out need, there. <laughs> it's all on that interweb. <laughs> I've actually wanted to be a forensic scientist since I was a kid. So that's my career path, really. It was something that was in my DNA, no pun intended. But there was a program, it was probably around in the 1980s, and me and my mum used to watch it. It was called Indelible Evidence, and it was Ludovic Kennedy, who was a journalist at the time, and he had this series looking at a few different cases where forensic science had had an impact in the investigation. And we watched it, and I was like, that's what I want to do. So, yeah, it's really weird, but I mean... You kind of think now, what happens if it turned out really badly? (laughs) Because all of my choices going through school and everything else, they were all made with the view that I wanted to be a forensic scientist. So it's kind of really, I don't know, you're almost like getting rid of any other option because you're throwing off the arts, you're throwing away geography, you're doing all of that to try and focus yourself into science and as it happened, it worked out, and here I am. And you, did you have a plan B? No. <laughs> <laughs> have more dogs, I think, was plan B. How so, many dogs do you have now? Uh, two dogs. Yeah. I saw one yeah. on your LinkedIn profile. They're everywhere. They're absolutely everywhere. <laughs> Since you began your career in 1996, there have been huge advances in technology, which presumably has had a positive impact on the work that you do. Can you tell me how things have changed since you first started? Well, I got older. (laughs) (laughs) Same here. That happened. (laughs) The thing about forensic science is it's really interesting how we use science to investigate crime. And obviously, fingerprints have been around for centuries and people have relied on those to investigate and to identify people. But when you look at the whole timescale and the, the kind of the history of forensic science, DNA technology only really came online in around the 80s. And if you kind of think about that in the whole history of forensics, that's quite recent. And yet in my career of nearly 30 years, DNA advancements have just been absolutely rocketing through the industry, such that now we can recover DNA profiles from really small amounts of material, such that when I started my career in Edinburgh, actually, then we needed a reasonably large amount of material to generate any sort of biological information from it. And we used blood grouping techniques and kind of the old-fashioned techniques of forensic science. And now we can recover DNA profiles from air. So the kind of the ability 
in forensic science to identify trace material is absolutely astonishing. And now we're in a point where once we detect it, we have to try and understand what does it actually mean? Because we don't know whether the trace that we're detecting is actually relevant to the crime. It could be. It's kind of background stuff. Or we've just picked it up by accident. So that's the kind of the challenge now in terms of we know we can find stuff. It's just now understanding what it actually means in the context of the questions that we're being asked. I actually have first-hand experience from a family point of view of DNA helping to solve a crime. My aunt was murdered in 2007. Her ex-husband hired a hitman from Thailand to come over and it was a friend of his to murder her and they were found because the hitman stayed at my uncle's mother's house used a glass in the bathroom that happened to still be there when the police started investigating and they managed to get his DNA from that glass and tie it up to a piece of duct tape that was used to tie her up. It's astonishing every contact leaves a trace right that's the whole remit of forensic science so All of these things that are being laid down in the context of crime, they might be inadvertent or people might not necessarily be thinking about them. But if you know where to look and how to stitch it together, it can create a really compelling narrative in the context of the investigation. The fact that you can recover DNA from a glass that someone may have used just thinking, well, I just want to drink. And then suddenly that's the jigsaw piece that puts it together to link it to the item that is absolutely integral to the commissioning of of that violence. Great. Yeah? Yeah. What an idiot. Well, that's what we thought. (laughs) But that blew my mind when this was explained to me, this is what had happened. I was like, wow, this is fascinating. I kind of wish that maybe I hadn't gone down the path I went down. I mean, the thing about DNA is it's a blueprint, right? So as soon as you recover DNA from anything, then it provides an opportunity to identify someone. So if, as an example, we recover a profile that is unknown because there's a stranger involved in this context and that person happens to be on the National DNA Database, then you've effectively got the name and address from a biological sample. Luckily, he was on the National Database. And there you go. And that's when the investigation can start to really focus in on the role of that individual in the context of the question. It's not saying they did it, but it's saying you need to look really closely at this individual because their DNA is present. And that's kind of the magic of forensic science, interpreting what that means in the context of the investigation. When I lived in the States... I did a course one summer with Dr. Henry Lee, which I found fascinating. (laughs) And I also worked with some private investigators on some cold cases that they had, working with them on the crime scene photos. And it made me realise how important blood spatter is in a crime. And I know that you now specialise in blood pattern analysis. Why did you decide to specialise in that rather than in a different area of forensics? So to get there, I sort of have to explain the journey that I took. I went through this really focused education to try and become a forensic scientist. And then at the time, there was really only two master's programs in forensics in the UK, one of which was at Strathclyde University in Glasgow, which is exactly where we are now. So I did this forensic master's course and they'd 
arranged, they got these sort of partnerships with different places, one of which was with Miami-Dade Police Laboratory. So I went out to Miami and did my research, my master's research out there in DNA. And when I was there, there was this guy called Toby, and he ran bloodstain training courses. And I was absolutely fascinated by this. I mean, blown away. And the experience was absolutely formative. I can't even tell you how exciting the, the whole experience was. But the fact that I was in the middle of this functioning crime laboratory, and they were looking at the O.J. Simpson case when I was there. It was a really interesting time. And this guy was throwing blood around. And I was like, wow, this is cool. So anyway, when I finished my research there and I left and he said, look, Joe, if you ever make anything of yourself, right, and you need blood pattern training, give us a shout. I come back to the UK, graduate from Strathclyde. I go and land myself a great job with Edinburgh Laboratory, Scottish Police. And I get through my mentoring and starting to develop my skills and I'm ready for the BPA course, the blood stain pattern analysis course. So I was like, wow, I'm going to give this Toby guy a call. <laughs> so I rang Toby and I was like, it's Joe? And he was like, who? <laughs> you were like, you said Do cool. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so I went out to Miami and did his course for free. Yeah, just paid for a flight. He put me on the course and I was absolutely smitten. I came back from that training course and then I developed at Edinburgh, did crime scenes and stuff like that. And then I moved from there to London Homicide with the Forensic Science Service, which is sadly no longer with us. But just happened that the lead scientist for BPA, bloodstains, he was moving towards retirement. And because I'd had this course from the States, I was kind of like parachuted in there. And he was like, hey, Joe, why don't you take on sort of my role? And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Timing is everything. <laughs> Timing is everything, right? Yeah. Better to be lucky than good. That's going to be my epitaph. But I was like, this is unbelievable. And in fact, when he left, he just handed all of his blood archive over. Sometimes I have to pinch myself because I travel all over the world now training people to understand how, what blood can tell us about different things. So I had a look special. at your website and your training courses. Do you do any training courses for people who are just amateurs who'd be interested in 100%. I tell you the story about Spattered, which is my, well, it's Spatter Ed, right? Mm -hmm. which, I saw that. I mean, that's <laughs> clever, right? It is clever. <laughs> I was like, what am I going to call this company? Anyways, when COVID happened, I mean, you would think in my line of work that would continue but it fell off a cliff. Oh, wow. It was like really bizarre how suddenly it went from being really, really busy to not quite so busy. So I was like, oh, do you know what? This is like a chance of a lifetime to sit down and carve out a little company that does the thing that I do anyway, but I just wanted to put a name to it. I sat down with the dog. <laughs> <laughs> and then that was it. So we were like, we developed some bits and bobs. And I mean, she wasn't that useful really, but, you know, just brought a tennis ball every now and again. Bit of company. But, a bit of company, <laughs> yeah. Ate some ginger biscuits. We set up this little company and now we've got an online course. Now this online course, which is essentially just taking snapshots of 
BPA, bloodstains, what they can tell you, how you interpret them, etc. And it's available online. It's 24-7. And I tell you what, the number of people that sign up to it, and they're anything from people who just want an awareness of BPA and what it can do, all the way through to true crime fans or just casual enthusiasts or Dexter fans. And it's really interesting because I find it really invigorating talking to people who are just doing it for fun effectively because they ask a lot of really interesting questions, actually. So, yeah, the answer is yes, you can do it. And you can give us a link that we can put in our show notes for that. Oh, that'd be absolutely cool, yeah. Yeah, because I know that when I looked at it before, it hadn't really occurred to me that, you can really tell a lot from a crime scene by where the blood is. It kind of just hadn't occurred to me until I started looking at it and thought, oh. The thing is, it's quite subjective. I mean, you can't go to a database of information that will tell you this is precisely what occurred. But if you think about any liquid, if you spill something, you kind of look at it and think, oh, and you can see a pattern in what you've produced. And if you're painting... I mean, I wear spectacles, so if you've got a roller and you're decorating at home and you use this roller and you're going to work on Monday, people look at you and say, have you been decorating at the weekend? you're like, how did you know that? you're like, well, you've got all these little tiny spots of paint on your glasses. And all in your hair. And and you can't see it because because it's like on your face. Well, blood's the same, right? So as soon as you start to bleed, as soon as that blood starts to be distributed in a crime scene, it's effectively setting up a narrative as to what happened to that person once they were injured. And if you can sort of apply observations, all you need are your eyes. So your toolbox, you literally turn up to a scene and people are like, where's all your kit? And you're like, on my face. Yeah. And you can make observations about the blood staining that can reconstruct the last moments of somebody's life, actually. You know, and you think, wow, that's that's unbelievable. And then what that can do is it can help to focus an investigation because it might help you to say, well, after bloodshed, this has happened. And then they can start focusing in on areas to look for fingerprints or footwear marks or any other type of evidence that suddenly comes together and produces a really strong narrative of what happened. Mm. Pretty cool, actually. It is pretty cool. I mean, if you watch Dexter, obviously, then, you know. We've all watched Dexter. (laughs) We've all learned everything we know from Dexter. (laughs) So, you know, if you do watch Dexter, then you're pretty much there, really. The detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask... Did you kill Renee? 
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. I had a look at your consultancy website, Millington Hingley. And it lists all of the areas you work in, and as well as DNA interpretation and blood pattern analysis. I saw that you also did animal forensics, which isn't something I'd seen before. And I just wondered if you could tell us a bit more about that. A few years ago, I met this guy who was a forensic veterinary pathologist, right? And I mean, you don't come across those every day of the week. I've never heard of that. (laughs) (laughs) And he and I were like just absolutely hit it off and I was like wow this is really interesting and he invited me along to an RSPCA conference and the lead prosecutor of the RSPCA was given a presentation and he basically said that the issue with their because they're a public investigator at the RSPCA they've got the ability to bring charges against individuals outside of the police so he said their difficulty their challenge was linking animal crime or animal abuse to an actual person. So they can look at animals and know that they've been abused. They can look at circumstances and know that there are a number of individuals perhaps who might fit for that crime, but they struggle to link one and the other. And I was kind of thinking, what? Like, that's forensic science, linking people to really bad stuff. So it's like, why are we not applying forensics in that context to help solve animal crime? Just didn't make any sense. So Alex and myself, we sort of, I was like, can we not do something about this? Anyway, as it happened, we could. So we set up Europe's first integrated animal forensic service with the University of Surrey and basically using his skills as a veterinary pathologist forensic veterinary pathologist, which is a real interesting distinction, with forensic science. So we were using our human knowledge of human forensics and applying it to cats and dogs, etc. You know, wildlife crime, unbelievable advances in terms of understanding how we could use what we've been using for decades in the animal sort of forum. Mm. So yeah, it was a really interesting project. I mean, the kind of the ripples of that work are still out there now. So, you know, we've really ignited an idea that you can use what's already available and apply it to animal crime. And you kind of think, why? Why has it not been done before? Why wasn't it done before? I mean, there are a lot of laboratories across the globe that have this kind of capability, but it's the integration of human forensics with animal pathology and animal 
medicine, etc. And once you start to pull all that together, you can start to really find the value and the way in which we can investigate these crimes really effectively. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. And I tell you what, they're doing research on recovering fingerprints from ivory and pangolin scales. Okay. The pangolin is like the most trafficked mammal in the world. So you've got this idea that this thing has been trafficked to extinction to be used in medicine, and we can now recover fingerprints from their scales to understand who's handled these things. Wow. You know, and it's like easy peasy, but so important in combating wildlife crime. Oh, yeah. You joined Inside Justice in 2016. Can you tell us what the charity does and how you work with them? So Inside Justice is like my passion, actually. I find it really, well, rewarding in a way. So basically, Inside Justice is a charity that helps investigate cases of individuals who have been convicted of a crime and who maintain their innocence they will apply to the charity and say, these are my circumstances, I didn't do it, and we'll then investigate that independently on their behalf. And, I mean, there are some cases where there's an application and it's kind of like, I'm sorry, we can't help you. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of cases that come through and we're kind of like, wow, hang on a second, there's something in here. And so I've been working, there's an advisory panel, which is absolute melting pot of amazingness. Yeah, I can we, imagine. Can I come along? Oh, you can, yeah. <laughs> come down, next advisory meeting, yes. come down and join it. Do a little show on it. They would love that. Basically, lots of people who are amazing sit in a room. They've all got amazing skills and expertise. So there's a retired judge, there are legal practitioners, barristers, digital forensics guy, the whole gamut of people who you would want in like your team. Your dream team. Your to dream look after team. You. <laughs> <laughs> They're there. And if the person that you need isn't there, we know where to get that person. So you put them all in a room and they all review the casework on behalf of this individual for free. And then they put in applications for appeal. They might put in documents to the CCRC, the Criminal Case Review Commission, and they're on their side. And if you speak to a prisoner and you say, look, we've got you, we will do all we can to help you, when they genuinely are there under some wrongful conviction, then it's a voice that they need to hear because it's a really lonely place once you get over that kind of threshold. Yeah. Very recently, we've had an overturned conviction Patrick Paheska was the case, and there's a, actually a few things out there that you can look up, but one of which is a podcast, and then there's... I listened to it. Did you? What do you think? No, I thought it was good. Yeah. It's interesting to get things like that out there, I think, for people to understand that it's not always the case that someone is actually genuinely convicted correctly. I tell you what, it makes you really worry about the system in a way, because that case... I won't do any spoilers on it because I think people should go out and listen to it. But, <laughs> but essentially, the evidence that convicted these two men did not change in the retrial. And the evidence that convicted those two men demonstrated that they were innocent. Yeah. And you're kind of like, how can that 
possibly happen. And the difficulty with that in the context of an appeal, and certainly the CCRC, is that they need new evidence to reopen a case to demonstrate that there's some new opportunity available. And this case didn't have that. It had the exact same thing. And I didn't, I don't think I realised that, that you actually needed completely new evidence to put forward. I thought you could just say, well, no, it wasn't, maybe it wasn't done in depth enough or it wasn't told the right way or. It's really difficult to get over the line when you're rehashing what was already available because they might say, well, we knew that you just didn't use it properly. And that's a really nuanced argument. Whereas if you come along and say, I was convicted in 1980 and now we've got DNA evidence which shows absolutely it was not me. That's very compelling, right? Yeah. But just saying, I kind of want to look at this slightly differently is not as compelling and it's really difficult to get that across in an appeal sense, certainly. Yeah. The work that you do can really change people's lives, unlike most of our jobs. (laughs) How do you remain impartial when there's such a lot of emotion involved? Because you have to. You've got no choice. I mean, that's a really silly answer, really, right? But there's absolutely no capacity whatsoever for me to have any emotion or stake in the outcome. I have to be scientific. I have to be balanced. And I have to give evidence for the court, irrespective of who paid the taxi fare. People listen to that and think, heartless person. <laughs> no, but I think that's right, isn't How it? How on earth do you give that as an answer? But you absolutely have to. You literally cannot become engaged with or influenced by the investigation. And that's quite difficult when you're working in a police environment. There's a real kind of appetite to get, well, get our man, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the traditional approach to it. But we want to get the person responsible for this crime. I mean, everybody feels that. I feel that. But I can't go in there going, great, we got the person. I have to be completely impartial and then hopefully convey that in the way that is appropriate. But that's not to say I don't go home and think, brilliant, because that crime was absolutely horrendous and now the conviction has been made and that's good. Of course I feel that. I'm a human being. I've got feelings. I've got an emotion. But in the workplace, it's really difficult. But you've just got to say, I am not committing to that at all. Just got to get on with my job and do it. It's part of the job, really, isn't it? To make sure that you do stay completely impartial and that there's no influence from outside at all. Yeah. I'll tell you what, when I started in the mid-90s, then I don't think I'd ever had any sort of bias training. And the way in which our previous experiences and our prejudices and our education and our knowledge, all that comes together to bias your view on stuff. I was never taught how to manage that out of my decision making, whereas now it's an absolute hot topic. You have to be absolutely fastidious about how you manage information, how you filter out things that are biasing in your evaluation and it's absolutely unbelievable when you think about how many years I've been practicing where I hadn't properly formally addressed that. I mean I I think I did okay but 
you know, you're kind of like, wow, you know, this is something that's so important, but yet we were blind to it, frankly. Yeah. Really bizarre. Yeah, things are changing, I think, in that sort of way for the better, aren't they, in that people are making sure that everything is dealt with and handled correctly and documented. And and it has to be like yeah. that, yeah. I mean, even my dog's biased, right, because... Because because there's a little place on the dog walk and there used to be a cat at the end of this alley. And we used to get close to the end of the alley and she would start barking because she expecting this cat to be there. I mean, that cat, I think, died years ago. But we would still walk up to the end of the alley and she would be like, I'm going to get that cat. But her experience has led to her behavior. Or somebody might say to you, oh, I'm going to go to that new restaurant at the weekend and somebody in the office says, oh, I went there and it's rubbish. And you go, oh, I won't bother then. Well, you don't know how you're going to react to no. the restaurant, right? No. So you're taking on somebody else's opinion of that and forging your own journey and you're kind of like you have to completely cut that out in forensics. Do you find that that carries through into your personal life? And yeah, I'm sometimes terrible. you do. <laughs> I'm absolutely terrible. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, can you see the other side of the argument? You know what I mean? When you're like in some sort of argument with somebody, you like, you have to try and see both sides and it's really frustrating actually because <laughs> I like to be right. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> My husband will tell you that. <laughs> I know from various articles I've read, including your submission to the House of Lords in 2018, that there are concerns, especially when working for the defence, that forensic results are expected quickly and cheaply, which could be open to abuse and incorrect and incomplete results. What changes would you like to see in this area? The forensic science in the UK is an industry. So the thing that drives industry is profit. And so as soon as you start to talk about and think about forensic science and pound signs, the wheels come off. That's my opinion. If you make a decision about what test to do based on cost, as an example, then it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the right test to do because you're selecting it based on the wrong reasons. That's where we are in forensic science currently. I mean, it's a pretty political statement to make, but why try and sugarcoat it? That's where we are. The reason why we made that submission is that decision-making about what test to do is often made by budget holders. And it's not necessarily just on behalf of the defence, it's across the board. And so when you get to the point where you're reviewing a case on behalf of the defence, which is what I do quite a lot now, mm -hmm. you kind of think to yourselves, why didn't they look at that? Why didn't they do that particular test? Why did they just get a DNA result and then leave it at that? Because just as an example, if it's a domestic situation and I find DNA of an individual in that scene, it's kind of obvious. It's going to be there anyway. So DNA wasn't the test to use. It might have been the distribution of the blood in that scene. It might have been something else that was assault-related and not just background. So it's really difficult to divorce yourself from the idea that we've made a real massive error in being driven by cost. And I guess it will go full circle, but at the moment we're in a really risky spot, I think, because a lot of the things that have been done have been done, but not to exhaustion, or the test that has been used is not the right test. And then 
from the same, if the industry is driven by profit, does that also leave some labs, for example, open to bribery? I hope not. I mean, everything's on a contracted basis. If you work in a Crown laboratory, you're typically doing work for the prosecution and everything is contracted. So, you know, I don't think we're quite at the bribery stages, but certainly there's different motivations in getting stuff done because the contracts have lots of clauses in them and penalties if they don't meet the turnaround times and such. It means that you're working very commercially in an area which should be scientific and I mean most scientists have a kind of civil service ethos you know they kind of like I'm going to work until the job is done Mm -hmm. so if you put that person in a constraint of you can only do your job up to this point and then you have to stop because the money ran out it puts people in really difficult situations I think Mm. and just on the defense stuff then anybody that reviews a case on behalf of the defense is still a forensic scientist. <laughs> I mean, I do a lot of defence reviews now. That's kind of our bread and butter, really. But I haven't changed. I'm still Joe Millington. Mm-hmm. I'm still looking at the science. I'm still reviewing it and telling you what I think about it. But actually, when you go to a laboratory or you pick up the phone and say, hey, can I have a look at the case file? I need to review it on behalf of the defence. It's kind of like, you are the devil. (laughs) And they're like, why? Why do you want to look at it? I'm like, well, just to see how it evolved, what your results were, just to check it. And it's kind of like you're a different person. Mm -hmm. And it's really bizarre. It's like a complete prejudice against defense scientists. And I don't think it's not got any basis. It's just people don't like being checked. Well, I used to be an auditor. I feel your pain. Oh, my God. (laughs) Because we're like yeah. most hated people in the world. <laughs> That's exactly it, yeah. I used so to I try go, in, be fair. go into offices, they'd stick me in the basement and say, all the files you need are on the top floor, and I'd be like, of course they are. <laughs> well, can I see this file? No, because that one's in court. I'm like, sure. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so, I mean, you know, the transparency, fairness, balance, they're all my kind of things. So, I mean... Deal with other people as you wish to be dealt with yourself. If I go into a laboratory and people are a little bit grumpy because I'm there, then just try and ride the wave a little bit. And hopefully through my actions, they'll see that I'm not there to pick fault. I'm there to ultimately answer questions for the court in the same way as they are. And hopefully it'll turn a little bit in terms of the prejudices against it. Yeah. But how could it change? You could have one scientist for the court. Lots of other countries do that. It's kind of inquisitorial. But our system and our history is embedded in adversarial justice. So there's no way in my lifetime, certainly, that we're ever going to get to the point, I don't think, of one person answering questions for both sides. Right. Because where's the fun in that? (laughs) (laughs) I want to move on from your superstar day-to-day life Mm. and talk about your... Dogs. um, (laughs) Not dogs. (laughs) I want to talk about Silent Witness. Do it. The work that you do in Silent Witness and the other TV shows that you've worked on. I would like to know, what was the most interesting show that you've worked on? I work on Silent Witness. I've only been doing that for the last few years. and Well, that's not true because... When I first went into kind of 
private practice. I did one episode. I was asked to go onto set and to help them set up a blood scene. And I was like, wow, that's great because that's like what I do. Yeah. I turned up and the, the story was this victim had sustained this really catastrophic neck injury and the blood had spurted from the carotid artery and it sprayed over the assailant and left an outline of this individual in blood patterns. I was like, wow, <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> I kind of thought to myself, how could I make that realistic? And then when I got there, they'd bought a big garden, like one of those pressurized sprayers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which they filled with blood, theatrical blood. And then they pumped it up to the max. <laughs> and then they had a cardboard cutout of a person, which they sellotaped to the wall, and then basically just let rip with this spray. of. <laughs> and then they peeled the cardboard off the wall, and then we were like, there he is. I was like, wow, that is unbelievable. <laughs> and that was my kind of first experience. <laughs> so that was years ago. And now, my God, the level of detail in that show is off the charts. The professionalism of the whole team is just unbelievable. The detail that they wish to convey in their programming is incredible. David Caves and Amelia Fox, they are like doing the job, really. And oftentimes I'll go on set and they might ask a question or two, but actually they already know the answer. So they're so committed to it being absolutely realistic and also really very victim-focused, which I like about it. It never glorifies the crime. It's always very much centred on the victim and their story. So I really react to that really well, actually. And I think that's good to hear from a viewer point of view because you always think... How accurate is this? Like, Yeah, I mean, obviously there are always a couple of bloopers in there and I'll, somebody might email me and say, well, they've filmed this and it didn't quite go as we thought it might. Is that okay? And I'd be like, do you know what? Of course it is. I mean, it's a television programme. Exactly. It's as realistic as is possible to do and I love being part of it. I feel like I'm part of the family of it, actually. I really, really enjoy it. Well, it sounds like you are. Can I come and interview you on that as well? <laughs> So let me tell you about my other absolute love, right? Yeah. Sister Boniface. Have you heard of it? No. Go out and watch it. Honestly, okay. it's amazing. So it's about a forensic nun. Okay. It's like Call the Midwife, but for forensic nuns. I am going to go and watch it. Yeah. And it is hilarious. <laughs> so I read the scripts for that, and I've been doing that since it started, and Typically what I'll do is, I, I mean, I'm quite busy sometimes, so I have to really like plan my days and such like, but I'll save the Sister Boniface scripts for Saturday morning. So basically I'll make it a really nice cup of tea and we'll be sat on the sofa and I'll read them and I am like laugh out loud. <laughs> <laughs> and the dogs are like, what on earth are you laughing? I'm like, oh, it's, it's unbelievable. It is such a good program. It makes you feel brilliant. I'm going to go and watch, watch it. it. Yeah. And you kind of preempted my next question, which is with so much to juggle, what does a typical day in your life look like? Or is it there is no typical day? There is no typical day. I mean, I am busy, but I work for myself. So, I mean, what a privilege that is, really. We've got these consultancy companies and I do training and stuff like that. But I work largely from home. So, a typical day is get up, 
have a walk with the dogs, have breakfast, same as everybody else. Everybody's turned off to this podcast now because it's like boring. (laughs) (laughs) Move on. (laughs) Move on quickly. And then do stuff like, so I might be reviewing a case and that would involve looking at the case file, the photographs, crime scene, whatever. I might be doing an evaluation on some scientific findings. I might be going to court, giving witness evidence, expert witness evidence. I might be speaking to people looking at opportunities for further testing in particular cases. I might be going to a crime scene. You might be at Crime Con in Glasgow. I, <laughs> I might be schlepping up. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely varied. So that definitely there isn't a typical day. But I have to admit, I do have a little badge, like a pin badge. And it says, I've been really clever today. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like we should all have one. I, of them. I think we should all have one of those because sometimes, because I'm working largely in isolation. I mean, obviously, I've got colleagues with Lynn and Polly and such like. So, you know, we're always on the phone. But sometimes I just reach over and I put this, <laughs> put this badge on and I think, do you know what? I think I did an okay job there. That sounds have cool. Have some more ginger biscuits. Your career has been amazing so far, you've achieved so much. What are you hoping to achieve in the future? What else is there? Wow. I don't know, actually. I'm just going with the flow at the moment. I was never one to have like a five-year plan. I consider myself exceptionally lucky. I've worked with some of the most amazing people. They would probably say the same. Well, maybe they will. But, I mean, I spend a lot of time now looking to sort of share that privilege and that knowledge with other people. So I do a lot of teaching in universities and such like. So just to try and give back because when I started, I mean, in Edinburgh especially, you don't look at those experiences and think this is the best until you're not in it and you look back on it. And when I think about the people that were in London when I first moved there, you know, these were people who, they developed DNA profiling. They were doing a lot of the kind of the troubles investigations in Ireland. There were people who were traveling all over the world and sharing knowledge and I was thinking crikey they're teaching me how to do this job and a lot of them now are retired some of them sadly have died but you kind of think that's your job when you've been doing it for 30 years you have to sort of start to think I need to now grandfather that back into the the industry and there's a lot of really young talent coming through that I think it's great for them to have you available to mentor them Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's, well, that's just our responsibility, right? That's just how you do your job properly, I think. If anyone is listening to this and they would like a career in forensic sciences, what advice can you give them? Wow, it's really tricky now. It's so competitive because there are so many universities, as an example, that do courses in forensic science. So you've got exponentially more graduates and they're all going for the same number of jobs. Yeah. So when I applied for my job in Edinburgh, I think there were about 100 applicants. I can't remember exactly. But now we're talking three, four, five hundred applicants for a job. So it is really tough out there. Yeah. But what can you do? Well, first of all, you've got to be happy, right? So as much as possible, you're going to have to move and go for the job. It's unlikely that there's going to be one on your doorstep. But there's a lot of police forces out there, especially in the UK, that are developing crime scene teams and recruiting. So 
I would say, personally, don't necessarily do a forensic science degree, although it's exceptional. The level of teaching is amazing. But if you feel that you really like biology, like I did, then do a biology degree or do a degree that that you can commit to for three years or four years in Scotland and then move and change your focus to forensics. But yeah, it's a tough market out there, but don't ever give up. Mm. Something will come along, that's for sure. Finally, you talked about your dogs quite a lot. (laughs) And I did stalk your LinkedIn profile (laughs) where you have a gorgeous picture of you and a black pup. What's their name? So, well, we have two dogs. So Dory is one dog. She's on the LinkedIn profile. And then Bracken, the border collie, she's in charge of the BPA dog blog. Okay. So she's a bit hit and miss, frankly. (laughs) Her typing is really all over the place. But she every now and again puts out a little article about some sort of interesting thing. So Bracken's on the spattered website, so you can have a little look at her. But both of them do flyball. Have you heard of flyball? Yeah, I have. My friends do that with their dog. Unbelievable. Right. So that's kind of my pastime, really. So that's our hobbies. We're okay. I mean, we're not Crufts level champions or anything, but they go and run over these little jumps in a team of four with their flyball dog pals. And then it's like a relay race and they get the ball and they run back then they have a biscuit and then the next ginger biscuit (laughs) dog biscuit silly (laughs) (laughs) and honestly it's really good so let me just do a shout out to our little club because it's called Kennet Flyball Club and the people there are just amazing and I tell you what if you ever want to try it out then you should come and visit and we'll have a day out it's fun excellent Joe, thank you very much for your time today. You're very welcome. And thank you for CrimeCon and CBS Reality for letting us use the studio today. I look forward to spending time with you at CrimeCon over the weekend. See you there. Thank you. Thanks again. If you would like to learn more about blood pattern analysis, Joe is offering our listeners an amazing 50% off her online courses. For more details, please check out the show notes.